You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt, director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. Welcome, everyone, to Why Shamanism Now. This is your host, Christina Pratt, and I'd like to begin here today by calling in the helping spirits to be with us. So I call out first to your ancestors and to mine, to all of those people who lived well and died well and bring to us all that is good and true and beautiful in our ancestral lines. I call out to those people who bring to us the legacy, the legacy that can support the living in doing what needs to be done in our lifetime in being creative and innovative and bringing forth those things that have not yet been manifest here on the earth that are needed. And also to hold true to those things we have learned generation after generation are absolutely necessary for human beings to live in a way that is good for all living things. So I call out to these ancestors to gather around us here today to whisper in our ears and to help us, to help us the living be here in a good way to do what needs to be done for those who are coming and to support those who are young and vulnerable and are here right now. And we ask you, ancestors, please come. Please come and be with us. And I call out to those ancestors that are non-human, of that life that was here long before there were humans and will be here long after. And I ask these ancestors to help us as well. Because sometimes we as humans make messes that are so entangled and so unbelievably intertwined in the messiness of being a human being. That it is only those non-human ancestors that can help us figure out how to either untangle that knot or to cut it out, to release it and transform it in some way, tie the two ends of the yarn together and keep on knitting our life. So I call out for these non-human ancestors to be with us as well, to help the living do what must be done in a way that is good for all living things. And with these ancestors gathering around us here today, let's bring our focus in from wherever it might be to our minds, from our minds to our hearts and our hearts to our bellies. And let's extend our awareness down for this moment, stopping everything to just take a moment to touch the earth and offer the earth gratitude, gratitude for this day, whatever it holds for you. Gratitude for all that has been on your journey that has brought you to this moment. Even those parts on the journey you don't quite yet understand how to unfold into the gifts that they were meant to be. Sometimes life hands us some very, very challenging parts of our path. And yet in it some way, somehow is something that can help us become the person that we're here to be. So we give thanks for that richness on the journey. And thanks for all that is to come. And we give thanks to all the great diversity here, to the beauty, to all the teachers, to all that there is here to learn, and all that allows this journey to be one that is fruitful, that allows us to bring our gifts to bear with our very short time that we are here in form. So we give great gratitude to the earth and the wonder of her dreaming and the generosity in that dream that allows us each to change. And so with that gratitude in our hearts, let us reach down through all the layers of the earth to the very center of the earth and anchor ourselves firmly there to connect there in the center to this essence energy of stillness and silence, darkness, peace, all that is before it becomes. And we connect with this energy that in its true nature rises up to the, to the surface of the earth and brings abundance. All the abundance that life here needs to grow, uh, to heal, to change, to live. And so we draw this earth energy up, up into our own lives, up into our own bodies. And we draw on this energy to help us to understand how to be grounded. And from that place of grounding to understand what is it in life that we take a stand for. What do we stand for? And to take that stand, to find that place. 
We ask the energy of the earth to help us to create a sense of home, a sense of hearth and family, a sense of belonging. And to do this in a way that is not based on nationality and closing our doors and keeping in only those who already think like us. But let us create a sense of home in our lives that leaves a place open for that which we do not yet know, that which we do not yet understand. And may we invite these energies in to our table and feed them well. We call out to the energy of the earth to help us to understand connection and interconnection and all the juiciness of life on earth. And ultimately on those very good days, may we feel that sense of oneness of all things and our place, our tiny place in that great rich web of life. And from that oneness, may we take right relationship with ourselves, right relationship with others, right relationship with the environment, and right relationship with the invisible world. And let us use this energy of the earth to rise up from our bellies to our hearts, our hearts to our mind, and we draw the earth energy up all the way through the sky and whatever weather it holds there for you, out through the atmosphere and out into the cosmos. Drawing this silvery column of earth's light all the way up to the highest power of the universe and connecting it there. Connecting in with this highest power and drawing it down. Drawing down this essence energy of blessing of protection, of the great generosity and benevolence of things, of great devotion and commitment. We call this energy in for inspiration and illumination, and we draw the sky energy down, down into the top of our heads, down into our day, down into these proceedings, bringing it down into our lives that we might be blessed by the all that is, drawing it down into our heart and our belly and sending it down to the center of the earth. And in this way, we become, our physical body becomes the meeting place of these two great legendary lovers. And we are infused with this original love, this big love. And we ask this love to awaken our hearts, that our hearts might open to the great crucible of transformation that they are. And draw up the deep, passionate energies of our lower chakras, drawing up these energies that swirl and stir and have within them the makings of why we are here. We draw these energies up into the heart. And we draw down the crystal clarity of the mind that has the capacity to look out in the world and understand where and when and how we are in this time. And to bring these two energies together that we can understand what we are doing here and how we might do it in a good way. And may you find in that beautiful human heart of yours the courage to do something in this day, large or small, to bring that knowing of why you are here into manifestation so that you can share your gifts with the world. So we give great gratitude to the energies above and below and around us for helping us. And I give great gratitude to Deb, Rich, Melissa, Michelle, Callie, Pamela, another Michelle, and to Darcy, and to all of you who have been able to donate financially to the show. I give great thanks for your help in helping me keep the show alive and on the air in a good way that is balanced in a good energy exchange. If you are moved by this show in any way, and today you might be moved into some interesting places, I admit. But if you are moved, understand you have been moved in the heart. And may you do that most shamanic of acts when that happens, which is to let the movement of your heart motivate your actions in the world. This is the essence of the shamanic understanding that all true power is mediated in the heart. And so I invite you to do something large or small to help the show to grow as a way to exchange for how the show has helped you to grow. So if you cannot donate financially, understand that that is why others do, so that you can draw the energy in from the show and do something of value in your life. And I ask you to do something that helps the show to grow. Use the teachings. Bring them to your journey circles. Take them into your journeys. Wrestle with them in your life. Do something that allows us to become the people who can change the story. For this new world. And let me know how it goes. Send me questions. Send me show ideas. Share the links to the shows. Share the fact of whyshamanismnow.com and the rich archives that are there with years and years of shows. And when you can, and if you can, there's always the support button there at whyshamanismnow.com. You can donate any amount, large or small. And please understand, while I would be welcome to have someone donate 5,000 whatevers, That's not really the point. I am more hopeful that 1,000 of you will be able to donate $5. So I thank you all for all the many ways you're helping me to keep the show 
growing, alive, valid, and useful in the world. So here we are today with part four of a series that I've been doing on uh, children and shamanism. And I was very grateful for Kelly Harrell joining us last week to talk about teens. We talked about younger children and we talked about the beginnings. And we are live today. So if you do have questions about today's topic, you're welcome to call in at 512-772-1938. You can Skype in from the co-creatornetwork.com site or email me at christina at lastmaskcenter.org. Okay. So part four. So we talked a lot in the last three shows about uh, teaching our children to protect themselves and how we can protect them and then otherwise get out of their way and let them live their lives and, and learn from it. But very few, few things frighten parents more than the fear of someone abusing their children. And there are predatory people in our culture. And in this reality... How do we parent without being crippled by our fears? How do we parent in a way that doesn't cripple our children with our fears? How do we raise our children to have both a healthy sense of self-protection and a healthy sense of fearlessness and adventure? How do we live with the presence of pedophiles among us? How do we watch our children go out the door with an awareness in our present-day world that children are taken into a slave trade, a sexual slave trade. Now, this is not common, but it is present in our world. So how can we honor our deep archetypal reactions that we, the adults, are here to protect the children, to protect the vulnerable, and still find a way to respond uh, that protects all who are vulnerable, that deepens our understanding of healthy community boundaries, and supports the possibility of healing where none appears to exist. So the deep archetypal reaction to the knowledge that a child has been molested, right, is the sense in an adult that we are here to protect the child. That's what drives the reaction that we have is this deep um, knowing that we're born in that's born into us that we as the adults as the strong as the wise as the powerful are here to protect those who are less strong less wise less powerful that we're here to protect the children and it's not just our biological children but our children all children the children of the world So what do you think those awful late-night fundraising infomercials are playing to when they put sad child faces on with flies in their noses and bellies extended in malnutrition? What do you think they're playing to when they show that on TV? They are playing to our deep archetypal knowing that it is our responsibility to protect the children. It is our responsibility to protect the vulnerable and children because of the nature of childhood, childhood itself um, is to be dependent on others to care for you. Because of this, children are vulnerable. And children are vulnerable to many, many forms of emotional, psychological, and spiritual manipulation because their survival, their physical survival, depends on adults. And we are not perfect. So today, two of the really terrifying possible realities exist for parents. One is child molestation, and the other is the kidnapping of a child into some form of sexual slave trade. The former would not exist without the latter. The issue then is the sexual molestation of children, which means that we, the adults, need to do a better job of living with pedophiles. So pedophiles cannot choose to be pedophiles, but child molesters can choose not to molest. And they do every day all around us. So I'm going to stop right here and go in another direction for just a moment uh, so that you can check in with yourself and decide whether or not you want to listen to the rest of this podcast. Okay. So if you listened to the episode a couple of weeks ago about shamanic life with kids, I talked about not creating soul loss in our children. 
The present-day reality in America, at least, if not other parts of the world, is that parents actually and unintentionally create the conditions for soul loss in their children regularly. I know this because I do the soul retrievals. Extreme trauma or abuse are not the only causes of soul loss, not by any stretch of the imagination. And there are many other shows in the archives about my thoughts and experience around this. For today, though, let me just say that I know from experience that children fragment to deal with parental actions we consider normal in American life. In other words, normal American parenting often in and of itself can create the conditions for soul loss. I'm not even talking about abuse, trauma, or molestation. So I know this from experience and I know that this is common in our lives. We, the adults, do, in our normal American way of approaching things, create the conditions that create soul loss in our children. And it is a very rare occasion that I meet a child or an adult who does not need soul retrieval healing. It would be a huge exception, a wonderful day. And none of us, none of us adults, are off the hook. We, those of us who are adults but not parents, can also be creating the conditions for soul loss in children regularly and unintentionally in how we engage in our work as teachers, as priests, as rabbis, as other spiritual functionaries, as childcare workers, as nannies, and frankly, in any role where we as adults are in contact regularly with children. So here we are then with an internal conflict. We adults, internal conflict. We carry the deep adult knowing that it is our job to protect the children. And yet, we are the ones creating conditions for soul loss in our children. And for a large part, we keep ourselves in denial about this. For me, this is one of the great uh, gifts of shamanism and how it guides us in a shamanic way of life is if we lived as shamanic people in our contemporary world, we could begin to live as adults that value the actions necessary to not create soul loss in our children. And I'm sure you can hear from the tone of my voice that this matters deeply to me. I have committed my entire adult life to this possibility. That we could become adults that as a matter of course in our day understand how to not create soul loss in the lives of our children. We need to come out of denial around this. And this is, this, is, this is why these podcasts are here for you. So that we can become the people who can write a new story for the new world. And in that story, we don't create soul loss in our children. So when I watch adults who've just been informed of child molestation escalate from the normal grown-up revulsion that archetypal feeling, this is wrong as adults, we must protect the children. How could an adult do this? This is a normal, deep archetypal response. But then I watch adults move from this normal reaction and response to this because of this deep archetypal flag going up saying, this is not right. Adults then move into a kind of active outrage and very quickly into statements that involve killing people. Outright, righteous, positional, I have the right to kill. And when this happens, and I'm not, I understand that if a parent is in the moment when it's their child that has been molested, I'm going to let you off the hook for the moment because I get it. But for the rest of us, I watch us, just the adults in the environment with the children who aren't necessarily our own blood, do the same thing. And I wonder, child molesters don't fare well in prison. They are preyed upon heavily by others in prison. So I wonder. I wonder about what drives us so quickly and completely 
to dehumanize the child molester and to feel so righteously justified in doing so. I wonder about this. Understand me when I say yes, it is our instant revulsion and anger driven by archetypal knowing. I say yes to that. And I say yes to ways that that moves us in our heart so that, they, so that we would and should motivate us into actions on the child's behalf to protect the innocent child, to step in and protect that child. I say yes to that. And I'm saying yes to protecting the child utterly regardless of the rank, privilege, or power of that molester. There is no reason in the world the child shouldn't be protected. We shouldn't step in, intervene, and protect the child. What I am questioning is what actually motivates the swift and complete outrage to dehumanize the molester, sometimes to the point of complete distraction from actually protecting the child. Is it possible but that the speed and force with which we dehumanize the child molester is actually being driven by our own guilt for all of the moments we have caused children harm by creating the conditions for soul loss again and again. Sexual molestation harms children because it causes soul loss and a lot of chronic problems from that particular soul loss. We cause soul loss in other ways, but it is soul loss nonetheless. So perhaps it is time for us to protect the children from sexual predation and molestation, absolutely, and to protect the perpetrators from our projections. So let me share what helped me. A listener asked me to address this issue, and I just thought there is no way I can even begin in an hour to do this. But he shared a link with me to This American Life. It's episode 522, the third section of Tarred and Feathered. And in this episode, an 18-year-old pedophile talks about his own dawning consciousness of the fact that he is a pedophile. As his own young sexuality is awakening, he becomes conscious of exactly what his sexual desires are. And in this episode, he courageously shares his conflict with his desire to be an adult who does not hurt children and the fact that he does feel sexual desire for children and he understands that this would hurt them and so it's somewhat circular and very frustrating. It's a huge struggle. It's a great internal conflict made even greater by the fact that in the U.S. it is very problematic to get help. So out of this struggle he started a support group for pedophiles who do not want to molest on the internet. And so Ira Glass in this, in this uh, episode, Ira shares that there is one group of people that is universally tarred and feathered in the United States and most of the world. And we never hear from them because they can't identify themselves without putting their livelihoods and reputations at risk. That group is pedophiles. It turns out lots of them desperately want help, but because it is so hard to talk about their situation, it's almost impossible for them to find it. So Dan Savage has several resources out there if you want to Google around about this. To, um, and in the, many of these resources, he's speaking to Dr. James Cantor, who studies the role of the brain in pedophilia and other atypical sexual interests. All of these technical names here. He is, associ he is the Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Toronto and the Head of Research for Law and Mental Health Programs in the Center for Addiction um, and Mental Health also in Toronto. And responding to the questions of a pedophile, Dr. Cantor says, accessing the support you need to get through the next six or seven decades of life, speaking to a pedophile who wants to not molest, he says, accessing the support you will need to get through the next six or seven decades of your life without sexually abusing a child. Uh, support the culture should provide to men and women like you in order to protect the children it isn't going to be easy, particularly if you live in the United States. Once again, we are not leading the world in the right thing to do. Other countries have created programs to help people. Germany has Prevention Project Dunkelfeld. 
which includes a hospital-based clinic and anonymous hotlines that people who are attracted to children can call when they need to talk to someone, vent, or debrief. In Canada, we have circles of support and accountability, groups of volunteers who provide assistance and social support um, and who, in turn, receive support and supervision from professionals. But Canada funds these programs only for people who have committed a sexual offense, someone who is burdened with an attraction to children. No one chooses to be sexually attracted to children and successfully battled that attraction all of his or her life deserves credit for their strength, self-control, and moral sense. But if they successfully battle this, they can't access the help. And so sadly then, in the United States, we have taken steps to make it even harder for pedophiles to get the support that they need to avoid offending. So this is the situation that I really hadn't considered. And so back to this American Life episode. In the episode, I began by reacting immediately, listening. Uh, to There's this deep inner feeling that this sexual desire for children is wrong. And this is what I mean about this archetypal knowing. And then as I listened to this very young man tell his story honestly, without a drop of whining or self-indulgence, but just telling a very painful human story, a story made particularly painful because he feels the same thing I do, the desire to protect the children. And yet at the same time, he feels something I don't, which is the sexual desire towards them. I cannot help but feel this young man's humanity and his need for help. He's asking for help to not harm the children. And as a culture, we aren't giving it to him. So as I listened, I could see how in our being unwilling to attend consciously to people like this young man, we raise the possibility that a pedophile, a pedophile being someone who has not molested yet, a pedophile will become so stressed that they are unable to maintain their desire to do no harm and to cross the line into child molestation. As I listened to this young man, I could see how our utter dehumanization of pedophiles, our righteous positional stance that allows us to feel so comfortable in that act of dehumanization, that we drive all of this into denial and into secret pathways and we amplify the very problem we wish to solve to protect our children. And in this way, we contribute to the value that raises the price of that end line purchaser of what is going into this particular part of the sex trade. So for our children's sake, we must make a distinction between a child molester and a pedophile. And that there are pedophiles who would never harm a child. And we have to be able, as the adults to live with them in a good way. So let me pause for a moment here on this strain of thought and say, there are also pedophiles who are child molesters and see nothing wrong with it. They see no reason they shouldn't satisfy their sexual desire like every other adult. And no matter what the issue, whether the issue is narcissism or corporate greed or drug addiction, there are people out there who see no harm in harming others, not just pedophiles. There's lots of people out there, like the young man that just gunned a bunch of people down in California because he didn't get his entitled right to sex from women, right? There are people out there that see no harm in harming others. They're righteous in that position, uh, they, and they don't want help, and they don't want to change. And if they don't want to change, they won't change. And these people, if they are pedophiles, they can't be around children, ever. That if someone doesn't want to stop harming other people, we've entered into the realm of crime. And we have to deal with it because the vulnerable must be protected. Then the vulnerability in the perpetrator can be protected. What I want to talk about today is the challenge in spiritual communities, in families, in compassionate life where there are pedophiles who do feel just like you and me. They feel the archetypal deep knowing that we must protect the children. And how do we help them do that with us? 
So there have been a number of sexual molestation cases in the very loose – I use this term very loosely – but pagan community in the United States. This happened recently and some people in that community are blaming uh, – or some people outside of the community are blaming this issue on the movement as a whole. Because aspects of pagan theology and culture sometimes seem, from those on the outside who don't really understand, to be enabling of sexual abuse. This issue, uh, this particular issue, child molestation, tends to polarize people into groups within any community. And there are those who feel justified in using their spiritual powers to do harm. Those who simply want to excommunicate the perpetrators, those who want to include the perpetrators because all sexual preferences should be held equal, and those who bury their heads in the sand and hope that others will lead. So um, one leader in the pagan community uh, sort of parsed things out for his own community in this way. These are the things he feels contributed to this this, uh, community's challenge in addressing uh, child molesters among them, basically. One, he says, is the never-ending whines about the burning times and their corollary. We must stand together against Christian oppression. In other words, he says, this would play out in this way. He didn't touch those kids. He was just looking at them while he masturbated. Isn't that, you know, isn't that worth uh, not starting another panic? You know, this idea that we have been so put upon that we can't possibly address problems within our midst because it would start another campaign uh, from which we would be put upon again. The emphasis on uh, – the second point is the emphasis on moral relativism and intention as the sole measure of evil. You know, the whole intention is everything idea out there in the new age, which I don't agree with. Okay. So in this case, the example he uses is, I didn't mean to sexually harass you when I grabbed your breast, so it can't be called harassment. And That's very problematic. So the next thing he says is the tendency to dismiss even the most well-documented complaints as witch wars. In other words, the tendency to dismiss complaints um, as something less than what they are. And the tendency to treat complaints of troubling behavior as slander and rally around the accused. And this is really, really problematic when the person being harmed is a child. This is it's always problematic, but it's particularly problematic. Well, let me okay, let me say this another way. This is a very important issue because in my practice, children who are supported by the adults around them suffer much less in the soul loss and the damage it creates. In another way to say it is the perpetration itself or the molestation itself is a problem. But when the adults around the child don't protect the child, there is secondary and tertiary soul loss. If the adults protect the child, believe the child, support the child, and then sort things out, there is less damage to the child. So this is a very important piece in the puzzle. And then the final thing he says is that the fact that your community is so nebulous as to lack any feeling of community or any community standards. And this is an important point. And hence, there's no feeling of obligation toward the community or its members. Okay. So given this, what the listener said who asked me to write this show is, what's troubling me is that I see a community that is really just barely called a community. It's more of an umbrella. I see this community in a lot of pain. And the majority of the leaders or elders are using it as an opportunity to grandstand and create for the division, um, as in you are with or against us mentality on both sides. So either you think all pedophiles are monsters and anyone pointing out that they're human is a monster um, and anyone who points out that they need help is equally monstrous or you think everybody should be tolerated as long as there are no children around and everyone should mind their own business. And so it's polarized to the point of Nothing useful happening. So some people are defending the abusers and saying that child molesters should be able to come to pagan events that no children are attending. Others are stating that child molesters are monsters, inhumane, and should be put to death. And others are bringing up that often child molesters were molested themselves. Okay, so the problem here is that none of this leads anywhere new. All of this is spinning around in the old story, in different different facets of the old story. Each is a fundamentalist position. 
based on adult beliefs that are circular and lead back to reaffirm themselves as adults and ignore the children. And at times this, you know, this is happening in a way that completely excludes what I feel are the two higher beliefs here that we really should be talking about, which is one, protecting the children, but two, not dehumanizing others, which is another way of saying how do we find our solutions that are connected to the oneness in all things. What I do to another person, I do to myself. What I do to another person, frankly, I'm doing to my child. We're all connected. And until we understand that that has to be a force and how we create our solutions together, we're missing the boat. And in this particular case, the version of not focusing on the oneness is in this righteous dehumanization of another person. So those who seek to include all and discern nothing to continue without standards and avoid leadership. So this require so to deal with this it would require identifying child molesters which is fraught with problems this idea that they should still be able to come as long as there aren't children here well who's they and what about those that aren't identified i mean it just it doesn't work it's not tenable and then those who see only monsters and end the conversation there end it in separation and uh There's no longer any understanding that what we do with any part of the whole, we do to ourselves and do to our children. So that position doesn't work. And there are those who are the bleeding hearts who bring up that molesters are molested, repeat back the politically correct response in the face of all perpetrators, a response that fails utterly to protect the innocent and the vulnerable. It is a way of appearing compassionate while burying your head in the sand. Moral courage requires first that we acknowledge the true source of our outrage and that we call on our spiritual practices to help us find a place where the archetypal knowing ends and our projections begin. We need to end our desire to hide from ourselves. So moral courage is about the ability to be vulnerable and intimate enough in our communities to actually have shared values and standards that everyone must live up to and that we have the courage to hold ourselves and each other to those standards. The courage to teach our children to grow into those standards and we show up without judgment for those adults who ask for help to live up to those standards. That's moral courage. There is no courage in punishing someone for crossing a line no one had the courage to lay down in the first place. We are not righteous. We are not truly right when we are cursing or damning another skillfully and intentionally for causing soul loss in one way when we are causing soul loss in another. So none of these positions, none of these uh, stories people are telling are leading to a solution they are not leading to healing they're not leading to stronger communities they are simply repeating the old story we've all lived in so it's not compassionate to treat pedophilia as a sexual choice or difference that's not true compassion this shows a great lack of clear vision and leadership to try to pass off your lack of discernment as your tolerance and acceptance Those who feel sexual desire for snuff films are not just expressing their difference. This is not about a fetish that two or more adults could consent to with safe words. The expression of sexual desires or power desires or, frankly, any desires that would derail someone from their destiny through the creation of soul loss or death is not just another difference. And that we must support, and if we don't support it, we're not being accepting. Derailing another human being from their destiny, damaging or harming another human being in this way, is not just another difference. It doesn't fit on that range of possible healthy sexual fetishes that two consenting adults can agree, or more, consenting adults can agree to with a safe word. 
It's not the same thing. And we must be able to be discerning without moving into a level of judgment and righteousness that damns the other, especially for people that actually know how to throw a true curse. Actions that derail the path of another's destiny are actions that move against the oneness of all things. Whether we are the one molesting the child, which derails the child from their destiny for that time, or we're the person cursing the other human being and derailing them from their destiny. Actions that derail another from their destiny go against the oneness of all things. Our destinies, each of our individual destinies, is an expression of the oneness. And it is our creative responsibility to discover in our life how to express our destiny in a way that does not cut off the path of life for others. So believing that your destiny is to have sex with children isn't accurate. Because it's a destiny that would derail another from their soul's purpose. So the question is, if that desire is there to understand, it's not your destiny. Your destiny is something bigger. Your destiny is something more passionate. And frankly, for all of us, our destiny is bigger than our sexual desire. When Joseph Campbell said, follow your bliss, he wasn't talking about what your sexual desires are. He was talking about bliss living an ecstatic life, something that goes beyond orgasm. The kind of passion that drives us to bring something to the world that's never been known before and the ecstatic nature of that life. This is how we get past all of this, is to understand our sexual desires don't define us, whether they're vanilla sexual desires or problematic sexual desires. They're not the point, people. Our soul's purpose, our destiny is the point. And so we must express our own destiny in a way that does not end or derail others from theirs. So the issue isn't just about pedophiles. We live with a variety of predatory people in all genders, all sexual orientations, races, classes, The question is, will we use our growing understanding of how humans need, what they need to do to be good to all living things? The question is, will we use our growing understanding of this, what we're learning from spirit, to change the story? And to change the story, we have to change ourselves. So the listener that asked me to do this show made a very clear point in his email. He said, in large part, his frustration with the feeling was was this feeling of the lack, uh, the lack of non-divisive leadership from the people that he actually respected as leaders, um, and it was his deep knowing that vengeance does nothing to heal the community, or to protect the future, or to transform anything. He said, I think feelings, my feelings that transcend this particular issue around pedophilia and are more about contemporary spiritual communities in general. And how do we address sexual, sexuality and predation, self-policing and justice, and the media or the outside world? He continues, I can't help but think that oneness and indigenous wisdom regarding communities and community responsibility around these crimes would be very helpful in this discourse. I feel that we have to address these issues on the level of story and look at the stories as a culture that is empowering people to take these types of actions that the stories, in a sense, that empower these people or create the need for these people to be the mirror for the community to look into. So what are the cultural stories or ways of being in the world uh, that um, at the root of it that we are all contributing to? And how do we tell different stories on the individual, family, community, and cultural and global level? So this is really the question, and it's, it's a bigger question. And in the meantime, while we're answering it, we need to protect the children. And so this brings me then here to what does shamanism offer us now to this discourse? So on one hand, I can't tell you. 
because my clients don't tell me they're pedophiles any more easily than they tell any other care provider. So I don't have pat shamanic answers from several hundred sessions with pedophiles because if I've worked with them, for the most part, I don't know that because they don't disclose. It's not like it shows up on some kind of spirit radar. So we need to change so that we can understand what the possibilities are. But there are two things that I can say that I do believe shamanism brings us to this issue. And the first is new options. I'll talk about that in a minute. And then the second is ceremony, is what we do. If we can begin to change the story, particularly the stories we have about community, how we can then begin to actually use ceremony to move this process along. So the first thing shamanism brings to this whole discourse is new options. In other words, there are many, like pedophilia, there are many physical, psycho-emotional, psycho-spiritual issues that the psychiatric allopathic medical system says this is the best we can do. So in the context of this discussion, that I can't change the fact that I'm a pedophile, but I can choose to not molest. That's the best we can hope for in our current um, psychological allopathic systems perspective. And, and you know, okay, I'll accept that. So it's kind of also like saying you're depressed and you're always going to be depressed, but we have these therapies or these drugs you can use. So this is – it's a particular belief system, a particular way of looking at things. And it offers particular pieces of the puzzle. And then when you look at the very same issues through the lens of shamanic healing, you are you have different options. You know, certain systems only have certain options. Even certain shamanic systems only have certain options. But my point is relative to these sorts of things in contemporary culture, shamanism does give us different options. So in in the case of depression, for example, you could do some clearing and reinforce that by a change in diet and do some soul retrieval work and reinforce the new behaviors that arise from the energy of those integrated parts and viola, right? No more depressed person. You know, so, so in certain cases, shamanism does offer us options that we could call a cure where other systems don't offer us a path to that place. And this is why it all needs to be working together, if you ask me. And so this is very common. This is a very common understanding as a shamanic practitioner today that the shamanic system of health and well-being offers us additional options and some can lead to cures. So, for example, in my practice, I would say the most profound example of that is where people have infertility issues that don't appear to have a biological reason like no ovaries or something like that that often there is a big ancestral issue and that once that is cleared and the corresponding physical energy is cleared um, which may mean diet and detoxing and things like that then the system kicks into gear that's a possibility that's that's a piece that i have seen repeatedly in my practice So it is possible that there could be shamanic options for pedophiles. Sure, that's a possibility, but we'll never know until we become the people who make it safe for pedophiles who don't want to molest to come out and ask for help. And this means we need to stop threatening to use our superpowers to harm them, period. That has to stop so that we can become the people that can become the medicine and perhaps come at new answers that don't exist today. So within this, I would like to mention that there is another online support group in addition to the one mentioned in the American Life episode. And this is support groups for pedophiles and, and support people who understand that pedophiles do not choose to be attracted to children. And they cannot make the attraction go away. That's our current understanding in the psychological medical field. So that's where we stand today. But that they can resist the temptation to abuse children sexually. There's another support group online. And if you Google virtuous pedophiles, you will find this. And it's an online support group in which members share the belief that sexual activity between adults and children is wrong and will always be. They are unique in their stand against 
adult child sexual contact and child pornography. And they help each other to not engage in sexual activity with children and support each other in leading normal lives. And these are very full lives in which they are more focused on living their soul's purpose than worrying about their sexual desires. And they also try to reduce the stigma around pedophiles, which is part of what I'm talking about today. The other thing that shamanism offers us is the understanding of the possible power of ceremony. However, ceremony works. Healing and reconciliation come from ceremony. But ceremony only really works powerfully in this way when it's happening inside an actual community. And by that I mean a community of people that have shared values. And that... They understand certain standards of behavior are required by everyone to manifest those values. And that they have the integrity within themselves and the compassion for themselves and others to hold themselves and each other to those standards that will uphold the community values. And this, is, this sounds simple, but this is an enormous challenge. People have, today, people have deep wounding around community because their first experience of community was their family. That most communities are really just a bunch of people associated around a common interest. They are not shared values. If you dig in, you will find that they really don't have shared values and they certainly don't have shared standards to uphold those values. And if I look at the very small example of my little community around my teachings, For community council, the leadership of the community to step into the role of leadership and to let me step away and and become was a huge resistance to leading the community, huge, to lead their peers, to be, to lead as a council, to not have one leader that everybody else follows, but to have a council of peers leading their peers, huge resistance and, and within that, then, one of the biggest pieces of the resistance was understanding it was their role to make sure that we as a community uphold our community values, for which there are very clear commitments that we agree to as a community and standards of behavior to live up to that. It's, it, it's huge. And this is a tiny community, tiny community gathered around a particular set of teachings. So you'd think we could do this, but it's challenging because it goes right in the face of our naive idea of our personal independence here in America. So if we want ceremony to become the power that it can be to reconcile, we must be willing to be vulnerable and intimate and to step into community that actually has shared values standards to live up to those shared values and the integrity and the compassion to hold ourselves and others to live in those values. And from there, we can then begin to actually have the kind of ceremony someone like Maladoma Somme talks about, or we have, for example, in the Southwest, the idea of restoring someone to the good red road. That the idea is there has to be a red road. There has to be a clearly defined path of integrity and honor and value and maturity and responsibility if you're going to try to return people to it. And that is the potential of ceremony. And one of the great uh, shamanic perspectives about problems that harm the community, be they mental illness or this kind of pedophilia or something like uh, child molestation, sorry, child molestation, is that these people are manifesting the sickness the community holds. It's not an individual sickness. In other words, as I was saying, the pedophile becomes the mirroring back, uh, sorry, the child molester becomes the mirroring back of our adult creation of soul loss in our children. And so we as the community need to be restored to a value in which we live in ways that don't create soul loss in our children. So this is the potential that shamanism offers. And right now it is pure potential because most of us do not exist in communities that have clear enough values and standards and uh, support of each other living up to those standards to even begin to actually have a truly powerful ceremony. We can have kick-ass ritual, 
but we're really barely in a place to have the kind of ceremony we would need to deal with this type of issue. But shamanism does offer us possibilities as long as we are willing to get out of the habit of those old stories that are completely ineffective and step into a new way of approaching everything, which means I as an adult who feels revulsion towards the idea of a pedophile must be willing to be there and to stand up for that person's humanity and help them not act on that impulse. That's going to have, we have to go there together. And so to end here today, though, I'd like to circle back around to one thing that did strike me in this American Life interview that was really amazing. It was, it was the young man interviewed is incredible. And this wasn't actually something the young man said. It was something the reporter said who, who did the interview and is working on this whole series. And bless his heart for doing that because it certainly educated me. And, it, and it's, a, it's a great service. Nonetheless, the reporter says something at the end of the show that struck me in, in an interesting way. At the end, he's talking about, he says very clearly that we are asking pedophiles to live their whole lives without satisfying their sexual desires. And he states that as if not satisfying your sexual desires is something worse than death. Now, he's a young man, and I don't know, a lot of young men, it sort of feels that way. Um, but I'm also wondering in the, in the larger context, how did we get here culturally? How did we get to this idea, this, this idea, just an idea that not satisfying our sexual desires is some hideous thing? Because the truth of the matter out there is there are people listening to this show that have never satisfied their very vanilla sexual desires for whatever reason. Because they feel socially awkward, because they don't feel sexy. I mean, there's a lot of people that live their lives without really fulfilling their sexual desires. And I'm not advocating that as a lifestyle, but I'm saying, come on, let's get real, people. People live through not satisfying their sexual desires every day, all the time. Do I believe we need to have a happy and healthy sex life? Yes, I do. But satisfying our sexual desires should not be the driving force for any of us, regardless of the nature of our sexual desires. And I can name a number of things right off the top of my head that make it well worth setting my sexual desire aside and rerouting that sexual energy into something else. Some of the most productive, clear, deeply moving devotional times of my life is when my, when my sexual practice was with myself through my qigong to give myself the energy to live my soul's purpose. And that is a perfectly viable answer. So there's this not living our sexual desires is really something, that issue, that question is something we need to look at. Because a life of health and well-being is not created by allowing our sexual desires to drive the car. For any of us, a life of health and well-being is driven by our desire to live our soul's purpose. And it's one of the things that came out on the online groups supporting people of not acting in their pedophilia is they had huge, big, full lives with other things they felt passionate about. So they didn't need to fixate on this one aspect of their life that wasn't getting manifest and because they held a value that was higher than their own sexual desire, which was to protect the children, to do no harm. To do no harm is a high value. So, so to live a healthy life, you know, that, the choices in our life need to be driven by our physical health and our spiritual health and our mental health, our psychological health, our emotional health. All these aspects of who we are contribute to us living our soul's purpose, not just worrying about whether or not we're satisfying one set of desires. And one thing that is so deeply important to understand in this whole conversation is that nothing will destroy our spiritual well-being more quickly than harming another. No matter how righteous we feel in that act of harm, nothing damages our spiritual well-being more fundamentally than harming another. Nothing damages our spiritual well-being more fundamentally than keeping another human 
from their destiny. So thank you, everyone, those of you that hung in here with me and listened to this today. I hope in some small way that it can be helpful for us as a community going forward in the world. The world that we have created and the world that I hope that we can reshape for those who are coming. So I give thanks to the ancestors that gave me big support with this today and in in my efforts to prepare for this show. And I give thanks to the earth below, the sky above, and the heart that unites us all. I do want to remind you all that registration for the cycle teachings is live on the Last Mask Center website. And registration for um, the wisdom of the shaman in everyday life is live at the Omega Institute. It's a week in July in upstate New York at the Omega Institute that I'll be teaching a class. I used to teach regularly, just the wisdom of the shaman in everyday life. It's a great introduction, especially if you think you might want to do the cycle teachings, but it seems like a big commitment. You could join me at Omega. Um, So anyway, the registration is all available at lastmaskcenter.org. So thank you, all of you who listened, and um, I hope you have a good week. Do no harm. Bye, everyone.